You're working around the clock, spending long hours away from your families, and making impossible decisions day after day. You're soothing terrified patients, consoling heartbroken loved ones, summoning every ounce of the compassion and strength that you got. And you're saving countless lives while risking your own. And I know that you're exhausted. The lesson I learned from my dad is the way you deal with hardship is you work even harder to get out of that hardship and you're strengthened by it. You don't let yourself become a victim to it. And I think that the difference between hardship and victimhood defines who we are and tells us what we're made of. And I think being an entrepreneur gave me a chance to discover that for myself. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I am Bio. Mom and dad prepare to have a baby. Dad is a biotech entrepreneur working on a treatment for a respiratory reaction to COVID disease known as a cytokine storm, which can be deadly. Mom is an airways specialist at a busy urban hospital who gives birth by C-section right before the height of the pandemic. She feels a responsibility to her hospital, her community, and her soul. She rushes back to work less than a month after giving birth. Making a virtue of necessity, dad goes home to Cincinnati, where he grew up, to take care of the couple's newborn son. Mom contracts COVID while saving lives in the hospital. So does her dad a doctor who also rushes to the front. Mom battles the coronavirus infection in herself and in countless others. It's a frightening time for the family. Back at home, Dad holds his newborn son close and serves on Ohio's coronavirus task force. He leads his company remotely as it works on a medical and data-driven approach that could reduce the pandemic's death toll while he waits to be reunited with his wife, and she with her husband and son. Oh, and Dad's brother won't be able to help babysit because he's busy plowing forward with his own biotech company, working to deliver gene therapy to the masses. Meet the Ramaswamis, a remarkable family doing essential work in the age of COVID. Today's guest is truly one of the up-and-coming stars of the biotechnology industry. Vivek Ramaswamy is the 34-year-old founder and CEO of Roy Vant Sciences. He's a son of Indian immigrants, grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and went on to graduate summa cum laude with a degree in biology from Harvard College in 2007. Straight out of undergraduate school, he became a biotech investor at a hedge fund in New York, where he made blockbuster investments in the eventual cure for hepatitis C. He left his investment firm and founded Royvant in 2014 at the tender age of 28. His Wall Street employer said, no hard feelings, and they promptly asked if they could invest in his new enterprise. Vivek, welcome to I Am Bio. Pleasure to be here, Jim. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, before we talk about your company, I want to talk about your family. Uh, your wife gave birth to your son in February. 
But then she did something quite extraordinary at great personal risk. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's been a, uh, a year of both blessings and, and difficulties for both our family and I would say no less for, for our world. In the case of my wife's situation, she is a physician. She's an airway specialist. And she made the courageous decision after having our first son. She had a C-section in late February when he was born. Thankfully, all healthy and all good. But it was right heading into the peak of the pandemic. And given her specialty and given that the hospitals were overrun, she ultimately made the decision to go back and, and really help patients in the hospital within a matter of weeks after she had our son. But the challenge for our family was what we did as a consequence, and we were still learning about the virus in real time. And so my son and I had to separate. So we were at our home in Ohio, separated from my wife, who was who was still treating patients in the hospital. And uh, you know, she did get she did not surprisingly go on to get infected with COVID nineteen, as many healthcare providers have. And her dad was also a doctor on the front line, and and was infected as well. So suffice to say that it gave me a great personal appreciation of not not just the struggle of our family. In a certain sense, we lucked out and that my, at least my wife's case was on the milder side and she eventually recovered and we're now reunited. But a sense of appreciation for the sacrifices that I think literally thousands of people just like her have made over the course of this year. And I think it gave me a deeper personal sense of appreciation and respect for what we do as an industry as well and what companies like ours in our own small way are each working on. Those of us who are addressing COVID-19 and even those of us who are addressing other diseases like it, it was a somber reminder for me of, of some of the vulnerabilities we all share in common. Well, for sure. And yes, uh, hundreds have made um, sacrifices and put themselves at risks. But I think your your wife gets some extra points there because she had every excuse with a newborn to uh, stay at home for an and a cesarean. My wife's had one of those to stay home and recuperate and be a ma- new mom for an extended period of time. And uh, she rushed up to the front line. And that is um, that's really quite uh, commendable. So how are she and, and your dad-in-law doing now? Thankfully, they're both doing fine. I think it was uh, emotionally was probably the hardest part. You know, newborn son. It's our first son. We'd been looking. She had, in particular, had been looking forward to his arrival for a long time, and for two of his first three months, she could only see him via FaceTime or video chats. And so, I think that was personally pretty crushing. But uh, that is now, thankfully, in our. And we like to think now distant past. We we recently reunited uh, about a week and a half or two weeks ago, and it's it's been a pleasure since then. So thanks for asking. And she's spoiling the heck out of him, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. That's for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. So you've initiated what you called the Breathe clinical trial. It's supposed to test a compound in patients with severe COVID nineteen to stop the cytokine storms that are really uh, secondary, but significant cause of fatalities from the virus. So we're testing a monoclonal antibody against a protein called GMCSF. So monoclonal antibodies, what you call a biologic. It's a big molecule. It's not a small molecule. So you, you take it by injection and it targets a protein, a cell signaling protein. Those cell signaling proteins activate other cell signaling proteins that create this inflammatory response in the body. 
sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. What happens in the case of of this virus is what we've seen in in the case of COVID-19 is that even many patients who are clearing the virus still have an immune response that's overactive and out even in some cases outlives the presence of the virus. And that overactive immune response then attacks the body's own organs, like the lung foremost, but, but other organs as well. And in most COVID-19 patients who die in the hospital, it's not actually the presence of the virus that directly kills you, but it's the effect on the body's immune system and keeping the immune system overactive in a way that attacks your own organs that ultimately results in organ failure, usually acute lung injury and death. There's no doubt that the holy grail here is a universal, widely available, safe and effective vaccine. And I think that a lot of companies are doing great work on pushing ahead with with their respective versions of a vaccine. I will observe that it's, to my knowledge at least, I've never heard of a vaccine developed in less than two years. Most take closer to 10 years, and some never happen at all. Look at HIV, look at herpes, look at HCV, right? I mean, HIV is complicated. HCV is a single-stranded RNA virus. It's a much simpler virus in many ways, like SARS-CoV-2, the virus underpinning COVID-19. And yet there's there's no vaccine even for, for HCV. So, you know, it's not an uncomplicated endeavor. And I am rooting for success, as is the rest of our society, for a successful vaccine. But I do think that it's sufficiently risky or sufficiently risky to happen on a short time frame that our national strategy can't be predicated on it. And the way we thought about things was a little bit different. If the vaccine's on the front end, which is to take a whole population of people who aren't infected, to give them a vaccine so that they're immune from being infected, we're kind of on the back end doing the opposite for patients who not only get sick, but the patients who get really sick and show up at the hospital, hoping to develop a therapy that if successful would prevent them from progressing to severe intensive care requiring ventilation. And our thinking was that, look, if you could not necessarily cure this disease or or prevent it 100%, but you could reduce the risk that if you show up in the hospital it isn't a high likelihood of actually going on to require intensive care or die, that could really change the equation in terms of what our societal response would need to look like. I mean, think about the flu. The thing that distinguishes COVID-19 from the flu is that about 20% of patients, depending on how you do the math, about 20% of patients require hospitalization, and many of those go on to require intensive care. Well, if you could snap your fingers and make the make the number of patients who show up in the hospital who end up requiring intensive care a lot smaller, then our societal response could be adjusted proportionately as well. If you take the flu, for example, we have a a widespread vaccine that's available and fewer than half of American adults choose to get it. We don't take any social distancing measures. And there's many years in which we're talking about tens of thousands, sometimes upwards of 50 to 60,000 deaths in a given year due to influenza. You know, of course, COVID-19 is represents a a more severe threat, I think, for patients who are infected and certainly those who go on to get severe disease. But at the same time, if we could mitigate the impact of that severe disease, then I think our societal, I hesitate to, to use the terminology in this way, but just to be blunt about it, our societal cost-benefit calculus as to the trade-offs we're willing to make in order to contain the virus at all costs versus contain the impact of the virus 
you know, could, could be very different. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's exactly right, because whether we have a vaccine that's widely available next year or the year after that or the year after that or never, uh, the fact remains that people, wisely or unwisely, are going back into the world and they're going to be infected. Exactly. And it's a multi-pronged effort. So we'll, we'll see our results for our therapeutic a little later this year. So you're working on a related project uh, having to do with, with the COVID virus. It's a, a medical records registry. And if I have this right, it would show who's most vulnerable, what treatments are working for patients, how the disease is spreading. Um, I wrote a piece last year in the Journal of Precision Medicine about the great potential to use data accumulated by registries like 23andMe and to revolutionize personal medicine. So tell us, how are you addressing patient privacy concerns while you're doing this? And what's your your vision for this COVID registry? That's a great question, especially the point about patient privacy. I do think that it will be one of the defining issues of, of our time to grapple as a society with how we trade off the, the importance of preserving individual privacy with the benefits that come from the aggregation of personal information. And we already see that in, as, as it applies to information obtained on the internet through social media companies. I think we're going to, you know, I think cross a very similar set of questions when it comes to personalized healthcare information in the, I would say, decade ahead. To answer your question, what we did with COVID-19 was we saw a lot of people, um, you know, drawing inferences from relatively small sample sizes, from anecdotal reports, as we had to do in the early phase of this pandemic, use incomplete information to make the best decisions we possibly can as a society. But we saw an opportunity to potentially think for the longer term here by creating a patient level COVID-19 patient registry. So not just aggregate data that's published in different forums and papers, but looking at actually a patient registry on an individual level. Now, we were particularly well suited to do this because, uh, and this is through DataVant, one of the unique things about DataVant is it had built a piece of software that does something specifically to protect patient privacy. That just goes to a, a hardcore investment in centralized IT security of the kind that you would expect of a first-rate technology company. So you mentioned earlier, you referenced uh, large molecules, and a lot of people talk about small molecules versus large molecules. Um, you talk about the biorevolution in three generations. You know, Gen 1 pharma, to me, was taking old libraries of chemicals by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, and seeing which of those chemicals happen to bind to biological receptors of interest to a biologist. So a biologist would say, hey, this particular protein in a cell is really interesting because if it's activated, it can cause your cells to multiply in a way that's uncontrolled and result in cancer. Well, gee, if you could turn that off, wouldn't that be interesting? And then the pharmaceutical industry would say, oh, great. Well, we used to be chemicals companies, and so let's run a screen known as high-throughput screening against this particular target and see which of these 100,000 chemicals happens to bind. Essentially, test them one at a time with very sophisticated equipment that can test them in spectacular f frequency or speed uh, and then see where there's a, a reaction that might be helpful. Exactly. So, so you throw 100,000 molecules at it, see what sticks, quite literally, 
And then maybe if 100 of them stick, then you'll have a chance that one of those 100 ends up being a useful medicine. And that's typically an approach reserved for so-called small molecules, chemicals that are synthesized. Now, Now, the second generation was the birth of the biotech industry, which said, okay, it's great that you have all these chemicals that you synthesize that are sitting in these libraries, but guess what? We have millennia upon millennia of evolution that have honed, that have turned our own bodies systems, our own cells into production engines of tailored therapeutics that are designed not by human beings today synthetically, but by nature to bind to a biological target of interest. So things like monoclonal antibodies. What if you reimagine that as a therapeutic, if you could make that from scratch? So the body randomly through mutations, et cetera, makes all kinds of, of, of molecules inside of cells. But every once in a while, one creates um, a stronger individual as a result of that, a more, uh, an individual at least more likely to pass on its genes, uh, and that one survives. Totally. Sometimes there will be a patient who's born with a defective version of a gene that's supposed to encode an enzyme. Well, you get a different cell to make that enzyme, and then you give that enzyme to the person who's missing it. So this is effectively using nature as not random screening of small molecules through chemical libraries, but the intentional design of naturally produced, generally proteins, that are standing in the place of of drugs that had to be empirically tried from from scratch through high-throughput screening in chemical libraries. So that's Gen 2, is the biotech revolution. And let me give an example of that, if I could, because it was one of the first ones I'd learned 15 years ago when I first came to bio. And it was a company that looked, looked at the fact that many women who, who don't, who aren't fertile, um, it's not that they don't, their ovaries don't make perfectly good eggs. It's that they lack a, uh, an enzyme or a hormone that, uh, that uh, causes the ovary to eject the egg into the fallopian tube. And um, so the, uh, in, in thinking about um, uh, how to solve this problem, uh, they thought, well, how could we get that that enzyme? How could we find that enzyme somewhere so we could then inject it into women and cause their ovaries to ovulate? And they thought, well, the, when when women um, go through menopause, it's not that they stop making this hormone; it's that it just goes right out of their body in their urine. So they thought, well, if we could collect urine from pre-menopausal uh, women. Uh, we could we could um, filter out this uh, hormone when they thought, well, where can we find such collections of urine? And the answer was nunneries. Uh, you had all these women in uh, this was an Italian company, all these women who were nuns uh, living in these nunneries, uh, and they actually thought it would be a lovely idea if they would collect their urine and the company would come around and truck and pick it up. Uh, and here they were, they they had taken a vow of celibacy, so they weren't going to have children of their own, but they could c- play a role in producing more souls into the world. And um, this was a, this, it worked, um, but then uh, it was a kind of a messy process all in. So what they figured out is, well, what's, what's the, what is the, the genetic sequence that actually causes cells to make that hormone? And they were able to isolate that and then put it into the cells of, in this case, Chinese hamster ovary cells. And they used those cells to become little manufacturing facilities to manufacture that hormone. 
and they do it in big tanks. Uh, and then they could, um, they could sequester that and inject it into women. And uh, lo and behold, they ovulate. And uh, there are probably millions of people alive because of that. So that's a, a rather graphic example, if you will, of how um, that, that whole process works of making a biologic. It's a great. I mean, it's a great story. I mean, there's there's a couple versions of Gen three, uh, but I think the Gen three that I, I'll point you to right now is the third wave of going back to small molecules and using computational chemistry, using AI, using machine learning to do what nature did in Gen two, which is to go back and now not design proteins, but to go back and intentionally design small molecules to go back and bind to a specific biological target of interest, not empirically by trying 100,000 chemicals in a library screen against a drug target and seeing what sticks, but rather intentionally designing from scratch a synthesized chemical using, let's just say, greater computational power today than we had a decade or two ago, harnessing that computational power to step into the shoes of nature. And we've begun to make investments internally that uh, that have, have, you know, I would say in early days positioned us to do that well, but it's still early days. And I think the next few years will be particularly exciting on that front for us. How has Royvan adapted uh, on the issue of clinical trial monitoring during this pandemic? And um, what are the takeaways you've found? So I told you about DataVent earlier, that, that that's sort of one example of something that, you know, was built out of our engine. But another example, since the example you asked about was clinical trial monitoring, was a tool that we had built initially for our own clinical trials, which allowed us to, to solve a problem that initially frustrated us, which is that we, like most small biotech companies in our early days, relied heavily on CROs, clinical research organizations, that go and execute your clinical trials. And that's where most of the money is spent. That is indeed where most of the money is spent in clinical development, in, in the development of a drug is in clinical trials. Now, the thing that frustrated us was sometimes, I'm just going to you know, use a hypothetical example, but let's say there's a six-month-long study. Well, it turns out that you only get your data feeds every month or every two months, such that by the time that's processed, you're almost halfway through the study in a way that there's very little opportunity to course correct on the basis of what you learn. And so wouldn't we love to get this data in real time? So our team, our digital innovation team internally at Royvent, built a tool that allowed us to get real-time monitoring in our studies of, of the kind of data that we otherwise were only getting as part of a monthly or every other monthly feed. So the, the typical story about drug development is a company comes up with a molecule that thinks it might be uh, safe and effective. Uh, they start uh, moving it upstream. Eventually, they get into clinical trials. And sometimes they, they, the data doesn't prove out the way they had hoped it would. But you have a, a different model uh, and a different strategy about the way um, you uh, find transformative medicines, you license them, you work to bring them to the masses. Uh, and I think you closed a deal uh, one of the last times I saw you at JP Morgan this year. Um, tell us about that deal and your and what it, how it fits into your larger strategy. Yeah, sure. So, so our strategy in day one was exclusively limited to in-licensing drugs from other pharmaceutical companies or academic institutions. So what we did was looked at areas where there were promising drug targets, where there were well-characterized drugs, some of which or many of which had early stage clinical data already, in license those drugs and then accelerate them through the drug development process to actually get them to, to patients. 
Last year was a big year for us. We had four successful phase three studies across our family of companies in indications as ranging from uterine fibroids to overactive bladder to advanced prostate cancer. And I think while we continue to be in the business of in licensing medicines from other companies, a lot of what we had built to do to, to sort of conduct that model at scale were investments in technology platforms that now we can harness to discover and design our own molecules from scratch in, in certain selective ways as well. And so we've that's what we've begun to embark on. You know, you're this guy who uh, got out of college around 21, spent uh, seven years as an investment, as an investor right out of school. Uh, your company uh, is only, what, six years old or so. It's taken off like a rocket. What is the secret to your success? You're treating hardship as something distinct from victimhood. And I think this is an important conversation to have in the context of being an entrepreneur, in the context of being an entrepreneur in biotech. But I actually think also just in the context of being an American citizen right now in this unique and and troubled moment that we're in. And I should say, actually, one of the things I enjoyed that is just a function of pure uh, good fortune is being born into a family that prioritized education in a family that, you know, wasn't necessarily wealthy, but was well-educated, at least, at the, at the time they came to this country to establish a new life. And I think that strong family foundation gave me something that so many others lack. And I, I wouldn't—it's hard enough to jump high, but you need a, But if you're jumping high from a stable floor, it certainly makes it a lot easier than one that's moving out from under you. But I would say going through hardships as a kid— Growing up in you know middle class family in Southwest Ohio, and you know my dad nearly losing his job when we grew up, and he ended up taking night classes, going to law school for four years after working at GE during a period of layoffs and cost cutting under Jack Welch. You know it it, it sort of shaped my view about how you deal with hardship. So that'd be the advice I would give you: is to be a survivor rather than a victim. Well, and if if you wanted to build character, you pick the right field because biotech projects fail about 90% of the time. And for, uh, and I've seen so many of them uh, uh, get really all the way down to the end of phase three and the the thing doesn't work. The the drug doesn't work. And that's the end of the company. I mean, people get laid off and that's the end. Uh, Lots of serial and entrepreneurs in biotech, and it's usually because they failed over and over again. But as you said, they didn't see it as victimhood. They saw it as a challenge and they got up. So you have a brother who also started a a biotech company. What's he doing? He is uh, four years younger than me. Funny enough to the day, actually. So we were both born on August 9th, four years apart. And uh, he, he went to the same high school and the same college that I did, but we were each four years apart. So it was lockstep we never exactly overlapped. He took a different track along the way because he's, he's trained as a physician, which I'm not. But he really uh, took a deep interest f- f- diving into the next generation of gene therapy for larger, more prevalent conditions rather than particular rare diseases that might be monogenic and, and lent themselves well to the first generation of gene therapy. He's now looking at the application of gene therapy to larger market opportunities, including some in the cardiometabolic sphere. So he made that announcement, I think, I don't know, sometime in the last couple of months. And and I'm looking forward to seeing him succeed. It's funny, we, we used to be competitive tennis players growing up. I kind of used to be his coach too. We had to, I had to double as his coach and made it easier for my mom when I did that. 
But as we grew up, sometime when we were teenagers, I don't remember, he started beating up on me as a, as a tennis player. And so I think he's probably on a, on a friendly mission to do the same thing here with his new company as well. But I, I'm really looking forward to seeing him succeed. Well, uh, look, what a great story. I mean, it's a great American story. You've got parents who come from India uh, with certain um, really deeply held convictions about the value of, of family and about education, about uh, overcoming obstacles. And there you do, you, you, you're a prime example of, of all of that. So is your brother. And the country's better for it, and uh, you, your employees are better for it, and all of the patients that you have uh, served and will serve uh, in the many, many years you have ahead of you at your tender age will all benefit from that as well. Thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it, Jim. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. And to learn more about the work of heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, we're going to talk about sustainability in the COVID era. The pandemic is testing areas where society has made progress, like reusable grocery bags and eliminating straws. But in these times, people are loath to use the same bag twice, and many want straws to drink in public while wearing a mask. So we're going to talk to a biotech entrepreneur in the bioplastic space who has an elegant solution. In the pandemic, we don't have to choose. We can take care of ourselves and our planet. That's our focus next Monday on I Am Bio.